Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. I'm not going to do a lot of review. I want to get to the information that I want to share tonight. But when we started a couple of weeks ago looking at this topic of the kingdom of heaven, I really want us to recognize that a couple of things. Such a significant part of this message that has been missed is the fact that there is currently a kingdom of heaven. We all recognize because of where we live, the uniqueness of the, of the opportunities, the things that we see and the things that we do because we live in a country that has the laws, that has the opportunities, the privileges that we are allowed in this country. We know it because we get to experience every day and we could describe to someone what life in this country is like because we've experienced it. I love Jay's illustration a couple of years ago when he was talking about this place in England where when you go through this gate, you walk into a place where the law, even though you're still squarely in the middle of England, and now the laws of America apply and not the law of England. Squarely on the island, squarely in the middle of a foreign country, but in that foreign country, you walk through this gate and the laws of America apply because there's an American flag flying over it. So when you walk into the, to the U.S. Embassy, the laws of America apply and all the things outside don't apply anymore because you're citizens of a different kingdom, citizens of a different country, even though it's squarely in the middle of a foreign country. I don't know how to better picture the kingdom of heaven. We are under a set of rules. We are under a very dynamic that is of heaven because there's a heaven's banner is flying over it. Yes, it's squarely in this world, squarely in the middle of something where the rules are very, very different. But when we enter into this place, when we enter into the kingdom of heaven, there is a life. There, is, there are standards, there's rules, there's things totally different than just outside beyond that kingdom. I don't think it's dawned on most Christians that we currently belong to a kingdom and are kingdom citizens and we should live as the citizens of that kingdom so demonstrating the laws and the rules of that kingdom. So when John the Baptist comes and announces that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 6 that makes that announcement that in this prayer, I don't think it's dawning on people the significance of what, that, what he said in that prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. What he's saying is in this kingdom that we're citizens of, this invisible kingdom called the kingdom of heaven, the life that we're supposed to be living is the reality of heaven and not the limitations of earth. I want to tell you that most people don't have any desire for Christianity because they, they don't see an ounce of heaven in the things that we claim to do. They don't see it. But Jesus said it, that the very dynamic of God, the nature of God, the authority of God, the power of God, the heart of God, the will of God was designed because sin is now being dealt with it by the blood of Jesus, that the very reality and the essence of heaven can come and be real upon this earth. And Jesus walked three and a half years to show us exactly what that looked like. Because you could not define his life by the powers of his humanity, you had to define his life in that ministry by the power of heaven. And that was not designed to be the exception. That was designed to be the reality of our life. 
I don't think I know many Christians who believe that they're members of the kingdom of heaven. Now, they see themselves in heaven someday, but, but have no concept of what it means to be a citizen of a kingdom where the rules and the regulations are all supernatural and defined by the reality of God and not the limitations of our humanity. I want to tell you, when you minister, when you realize that somebody's looking at you and their life is in a mess. I had someone on the phone today just because we couldn't close the gap between us. So the best that we could do was on the phone. This conversation starts and can really barely understand what's being said because of the, the tears and the hurt. And I told this person, I said, I hope by the time that we finish that your day has drastically changed. And the comment back to me was, I don't see how. An hour and a half later, I want to tell you, this person on the other end of the phone realized how drastically different their life can be because the truth was spoken. The Holy Spirit shared what had to be shared. And all of a sudden, there was a reality in this person that they hadn't had an hour and a half earlier. I want to tell you, I wouldn't have even made the call, had the conversation. If I didn't believe, this isn't arrogance, this, is, this should be our standard. If I didn't believe that the Holy Spirit lived in me and that I had an opportunity by releasing his power into her story, that her life could be drastically different. Or I wouldn't even bother. That's not the unusual life. That is the normal Christian life. When you look at the reality of how God designed us, he designed us to come to this recognition that we are members now of a kingdom, citizens of a kingdom, whose very definition is supernatural. Jesus, again, came to demonstrate it. What did God choose to do through Jesus that would make Jesus stand out? What made him different? What made him catch attention and be noticed? Miracles. They'd never seen 10 lepers be healed. They'd never seen a man lowered through the roof and his sins forgiven and gets up and walked. They'd never seen that before. They'd never seen the healing of, of a blind man. That's never seen such demonstrations of authority. They've never seen such demonstrations of power. Because what God wanted the world to see was that the difference between him and everything else was that he was bringing the reality of a kingdom like they had never known. And it was supernatural. And we have come to the, to the decision that God doesn't do supernatural anymore. So the very one thing that he drew particular attention to that would separate him from everything else, we decided he stopped doing and so the world looks at us and doesn't have any desire to be a part of what's going on within this group called a church because there's absolutely no difference between us and them because we can't, and, and I know this, this is hard to even grasp, mentally take on, that we have taken this book and even for those who have learned it well, who can quote it, share it, talk about it, those who know it, still hold it at a concept level never believing that those concepts can be manifest on this earth and become real. We hold these things up here as things we know, but don't believe for a second that what I know and has, that I believe was true here can ever be manifested and become reality right here, right now in these moments. Because most of us have learned well, but never believed by faith well. We hold our, our knowledge at the concept level because we don't have a clue or even believe for a second that God wants to do that same thing right now in, among his people and still demonstrate on earth as it is in heaven. Again, I'm not taking on Matthew 13 necessarily. I want us to get the reality of the kingdom. I want us to understand what he was talking about because 
I know that someone could probably prove me wrong and I would accept that. But in my study of the book of Matthew, I cannot find one scripture that tells us anything about salvation, about becoming a Christian. It's not in here. This is about kingdom life. This is about what we're going to encounter as kingdom citizens. So I want us to begin with verse 24 of Matthew 13. And I don't know three stories in the Bible that are taught more incorrectly than the three that we're fixing to talk about. And I'm not going to talk about them in depth. But when we miss it, the expectation that it creates, we can't even tell it as truth, but it's told and written day after day, day after day, about these three stories, these three parables. And remember, Jesus told the disciples, let let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, he's not inviting everybody to listen. That wasn't the invitation. The invitation was, if you have spiritual ears, you'll understand what I'm talking about. If you don't have spiritual ears, you're going to think you heard a strange story, and that's all it's going to amount to. And he's told his disciples, it's yours to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And we talked about that Sunday morning. This kingdom is a kingdom of mysteries, things that we've never heard before, realities that we've never seen before. I don't, I, they didn't know what it even meant. Christ in me, the hope of glory. That was a mystery to them. So we're going to look at these three parables. I'll talk briefly about how they have been taught and then speak the truth about each one of them. First of all, verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So doesn't it seem strange here that the answer that Jesus would give, the master would give, that God would give, was let them grow together. He could say it, but we, it requires a mental shift in us. Because unfortunately, we have this idea of God. He is somehow functioning under limitations that it would be damaging to the wheat for the tares to be there. Because we have this mentality that the, that the tares are consuming something designed for the wheat. It's because we approach God with this, uh, this concept of limitation. The reason that it did not damage the wheat was because he's not functioning from a limited amount of water in this case. He's functioning from an abundance. He said the wheat will, the wheat will never be bothered by the tares. But it requires a mental shift in us to recognize that those tares have no ability to damage the wheat. People ask me from time to time why I don't like to vote. Such a democratic part of how our governments work in all levels from even back here in our business meetings when, when in our board of directors, we vote. Why is it damaging to bring things to the church to vote? From this scripture, why is it damaging? Why should you be tremendously careful? Who also gets to vote? The tares get to vote. What happens if the tares outnumber the wheat? Who's going to carry the church along? 
The tares will begin to establish direction. The tares will begin to establish vision. The tares will begin to make the decisions of where, the, where churches go and what they do and how they look. And I want to tell you, it's a chronic problem. Voting, democracy within the church, is not found in this book. And even in the few times that you find it, when the disciples were told to go to Jerusalem and wait, and they say, well, you know, we're missing a disciple because Judas is no longer with us. So this, these guys that were told to go to Jerusalem and wait make a decision. Well, we've got to find a 12th disciple. So they vote. Have a couple of candidates. I'm sure they campaigned. Put up signs, you know, vote, vote for me. You know, I'll be the best apostle. And so they elect one. His name is Matthias. What do we hear about Matthias after that day? Not a thing. Why not? Because they had no authority to pick the 12th apostle. Who did? What was the uniqueness of the other 11? That all of them were called directly by God, but directly by Jesus, actually. So who's the 12th apostle? Paul, the last one directly called by Jesus. They had no authority to do what they did, but they voted. They came up with a conclusion. They answered the question outside of the will of God. You see, we read these things... And I can tell you today, we should have no alarm if we live according to what he's talking about here, recognizing that we're, that we're members of a kingdom and we're kingdom citizens. We should not be alarmed that there are tares that are being raised up among us. But I want to tell you, we have to come to a reality. I've shared with you often, very early in my ministry here, the vision that God gave me of how many people sitting in churches are not saved. That vision and that concern has never changed in me. Never changed. It's going to be a shocking day. Truly going to be a shocking day. When Jesus steps out and calls his children home. And the ones that didn't go because they, they've been in church for 50 years or 60 years or 70 years. Wondering what in the world happened. They believed in Jesus Christ at a concept level. But never had an encounter with him. It's going to be a shocking day. Tares among the wheat. Not carried along by the will of the Spirit, but carried along by the fascination in the hearts of men. Jesus said, this is going to happen. This, this is a word of prophecy about what's going to happen within the kingdom. This is going to happen. That we're going to live today with tares growing up among the wheat. And a sad commentary is most of them don't know. Most of the tares don't know their tares. They're convinced in their heart that they're wheat. This isn't evil, knowing evil. The, the kind of weed that's being described here, and y'all probably know this, but the kind of weed that's being described here look just like wheat until that last moment when it put on that bud or whatever it was. I don't know what you'd call it in wheat. In that flowering moment, that was the only time you could tell the difference, right at the time before the harvest. That was the only time you could tell the difference in one or the other, when it would head out you would know the difference. So it took the harvest to even know the difference. I guarantee you those that are saved and those who are lost sitting in churches look exactly alike. The next parable, verse 31. I'll come back to that former parable because we, we, there'll be something we've got to talk about here in just a little bit if we get to it. But verse 31. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is locked to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs 
and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. The typical teaching about this verse, this story, and the next one is that this demonstrates the effect of the power of God as something small begins to happen, as small as a mustard seed, and when planted, it grows into something so large as a tree and gives shelter to these birds. Talking about this universal acceptance of Christianity, this universal acceptance of the love and the goodness and the kindness of God, that when we do it right and we begin to spread it, it will consume and take over and create something, this dynamic, that looks like a tree. And I want to tell you that is not at all what Jesus was talking about. Every one of these was given prophetically so that we would understand something that was going to happen within the kingdom. Warning of something that was going to happen within the kingdom. Notice this story. I love this one because this explains why the church is so badly looked upon within the world. It's found within this story. Tiny, tiny seed planted in the ground, sowed in the ground by a sower, and we know who the sower is, planted in the ground, and it says it, it becomes the greatest of all herbs. It becomes a bush, and it, and, but it's the greatest of all herbs. What do you make out of that? herb, a bush. What do you make out of it? Healing balm, medicine. For that tree, for that bush to become a tree is a totally unnatural act. It became something it was not intended to be. And now these birds, somehow, I don't know how theologians can ever turn those birds into something good. Throughout the Bible, birds are powerfully connected many times connected with things that are evil. In the parables earlier, it was the birds that were coming and picking up the seeds off the ground. Why would Jesus now make those birds that he was referring to earlier, picking up the seeds off the ground, doing that damage, why would they now become good in this story? They're not good. There were several times within the New Testament when people would come to Jesus and they would want him to solve some civil matter between family members. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't take on any governmental role whatsoever and solve a civil matter between brothers. He said, not my business. I, I didn't come here to do that. Someday the government will be on my shoulders, but I will not do it. And I think it's very, very unfortunate that this parable, when somebody begins to teach it correctly, they say, well, what happened here, we begin to get on the verge of something correct was that what happened when this bush became a tree, and, and a tree pictures a nation, what, what was intended for us to be the healing bomb that, would, that was to be taken to the nation so that we would make the difference that we were intended to make, that we were designed to be people who would bring healing to people, who would bring that difference that nobody else could bring. That's who we were intended to be, but we left that behind, and we took on this role as a nation, and a nation that would have an agenda that we could push and have an influence and big things, government things, and that's exactly what happened. But the typical story is that this actually happened in, I don't know, 300 or 400 A.D. when Christianity was declared to be the, the religion of the world. So we, we reduce this to that moment, and I hate that. I, I don't ever see Jesus talking about one historical f fact when this is actually going to occur because it's occurring today as much as it's ever occurred. 
that we're still refusing to be the healing bomb that we were designed to be because as a church, as churches, we want to step into the political arena and have an opinion and push our agenda just like every other group. Well, if we're going to step in there and they, they have very kindly said, okay, you're the far right. That's who we are because we stepped into this political game exerted a political opinion, they labeled us as the far right so that they can keep away as far from us as they possibly can, and who in the world then is going to deliver the healing bomb to the nations? We got relegated to the far right. How in the world am I going to deliver a healing bomb to the far left if we become the tree pushing an agenda? And that's exactly who we've become. You get among a bunch of Christians and they're going to be talking about those things, how poor for us that certain things are happening within the government as if that government could stop the kingdom whose very nature is supernatural. But we've done it. And I can get on this soapbox pretty, pretty quickly because you heard me say, and, I, and it's not original to me, I don't know how to say anything any more true, that it's going to take an undivided church to heal a divided nation. But we live divided with each other. I don't know a group of people who are more concerned we saw it within the book of Matthew when Jesus is talking in Matthew's home, in Levi's home, the tax collector's home, and the religious folks are standing outside looking in saying, why is your master in there having a meal with these sinners, with these publicans, with these tax collectors? And Jesus hears them and says, well, it's the sick who need the physician. Why wouldn't the religious leaders go into that house? Because they feared contamination. I don't know any group on the face of the earth who fear contamination more than Christians won't go into each other's churches because of what we might hear. It's amazing. I find this fascinating. I heard this two weeks ago. Somebody talking about this church, and it was just, it just, it just strange. And the thing that came up was, well, it was, it was a question of tongues. And it said, well, somebody spoke in tongues there, and nobody, there wasn't an interpreter. I've been here a full eight years, and there were two times when someone actually spoke in tongues in the body, in the congregation. The first time there was an interpreter here and, and it was interpreted. Beautiful, Tr truly beautiful. Because when you hear it and you, you can tell the difference, when somebody is actually received something from God and it comes out this way, Paul says there will always be an interpreter there. But when there is an interpreter, when that interpreter begins to speak in English, the cadence of what was said in tongues will be exactly what's said in English. The rhythm and the cadence will be exactly the same. The second time it happened... The interpreter was here. They didn't know that they were supposed to interpret. So I've made it very clear in this church. If someone speaks in tongues that way, publicly, and there's no interpreter, my statement will be, that's not a word we can receive from the Lord because there's no interpretation. That's it. I don't have to do any more, say any more, or bring any light to it. I heard about this two weeks ago. Those two times it's happened has been, was seven and a half years ago. And it's told like it happened last week when I was gone. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I didn't know it. But it told as if it's always current. And it's like, I'm not going. If they do that, I'm not going. Fear of contamination within the Christian church. I'm amazed by it. Truly, truly amazed by it that that becomes the message. Fear of contamination within the Christian church. And I, again, we have taken on this role. And there's nobody, I promise you, there's nobody doing well bringing the healing balm to the nation's it says here that it was designed to grow up and become the greatest herb. Never designed to be a tree. Never designed to hold the birds that are now resting and roosting in it. Let me touch on this last one. I'll try to do so quickly. Verse 33. 
Another parable spoke he unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole was leavened. Okay, there again, simple story. Typical preaching and teaching of this parable is the very same thing as the other one. This is a demonstration of something very small turning into something very large. And we like that concept so well. We like the idea of this universal acceptance of the message that we're proclaiming and something so dynamic happens, the whole earth is saturated with this message. There's a problem with that though. You'll never find a time in the scripture, except here, and again, I don't know why people do it. I don't know why pastors do it or teachers do it. I don't know why they ever, in this, they make an exception about leaven because everywhere else in the scripture, leaven is bad. Even in the Passover, the bread is, they take the leaven out because of what it represents. In the New Testament, Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, the false doctrine, the sin of the Pharisees. Be careful of it. But here, it's used as something good. Well, what did leaven do? What does yeast do? How does yeast puff up bread? You're right. It makes the wheat rot. When it breaks down the wheat to where the wheat's not wheat, the reaction is what causes it to puff up. Think about that. Where the wheat what will the false, false doctrine do? Make us puff up. What did 1 Corinthians chapter 13 say when he's describing love? What's one of the characteristics of love? It will what? It will never puff up. You see, in this parable, there's a warning, and I wish we would get it. I wish we would powerfully understand what's being described here. Let me, let me break it down very quickly. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, false doctrine, which a woman, notice he doesn't say virgin, the church will always be described as a virgin. The woman pictures a false church, a pseudo church. Looks like, you know, everything visible looks right, but it described this as a woman, not as a virgin. A woman took and hid, so she hid false doctrine in three measures of meal. So what does three stand for? Trinity. What's the great lie? What did she fold in? What was the false doctrine folded in to the teaching of the Trinity? There's been several things that have been told. You know, there's been an attempt over the past many years to teach that Jesus wasn't actually born of a virgin. That's been taken on, but that's not the one damaging. Which one has been devastating? That we can be Christians without the Holy Spirit. That's the great untruth sowed into this teaching of the Trinity that we can be Christians without the Holy Spirit, that we don't need the Holy Spirit. And I believe that that is the great deception that was sown into the false church, that we don't need the Holy Spirit to be who we're supposed to be. And it says, and then the whole loaf was leavened. When this starts, and again, I'm very specific about this and I don't back up from it. When we shifted this book to become a book to tell us what to do instead of a book of identity. When that shifted, we became a performance-based church. And we came to the conclusion somewhere that the more I do, the more God will love me. The more I do, the more blessing God will give me. The less I do, the less he likes me. Paul warned about it. Jesus warned about it. We hear it here. That is a typical teaching. And what it did was it set in motion a performance-based church. You want to know how saturated this loaf has become? Is that we can perform, and church is based on performance, and I can perform, and requires no connection with the Holy Spirit whatsoever. And what's the outcome, continuous outcome, that has penetrated the church through this teaching? What happens when anything becomes performance-based? 
Pride. Pride and competition. Pride's a bad one. I got a church that's working. Man, you come and join us. You ought to see what God's doing over here. You ought to look at how God's using us. You ought to, you know, this is remarkable. You ought to hear our praise team. And I want to tell you, it doesn't take much for that pride to begin to rise. And then the, the, the loaf is saturated. Because we were taught, penetrating our story. When you take the Holy Spirit out, that's all you're left with is performance. I've got to get it right and I've got to do the much, as much of it as possible. If you take the Holy Spirit out, that will penetrate the, the loaf. And I want to tell you, church by church, denomination by, den- by denomination, we have fallen for it. And it's amazing how competitive churches are to make sure they hold on to their members and that they don't go anywhere else. It's, it is extremely, extremely competitive. I had someone in my office this week and they were talking about maybe we need to go somewhere else. And I told them, I said, the main thing I want you to hear as you, as you sit in here in my office and talk about this is that I made no statement trying to stop you. I will tell you that it would break my heart if you did. But I, you have to know that I trust your wisdom. I trust your understanding. I trust your guidance. I trust your love of your own family more than, than my word or my opinion. And you put yourself before the Lord, you'll get it right. Because I will not, I will not try to shape something here it's not the will of God. I won't do it. I won't chase members. I won't make promises I can't keep. This is God's business. He will shape this church the way he wants to shape it. I'm not going to alter that in any form or fashion. There was one measure in the New Testament that was a valuable measure. It wasn't how big the building is. It wasn't how much money we bring in. It wasn't how many converts we have or how many members are sitting here. How many programs we have. How many buildings we have. None of those measures are in here. The one measure that was valuable was our lives being changed. Everywhere Jesus went, that was the one measure that you could could see with powerful evidence, lives were being changed. That's the only measure that's valuable to me. Because if God's doing what God designs to do by the work of the Holy Spirit, lives will be changed. Healing will come. Transformation will come. And so that's one of those things. I can clearly say when somebody asks me how things are going, I'll tell them, Boy, lives are being changed. It was interesting two weeks ago. I'll be very honest with you. I'd preached a message that I knew God gave me, but he gave me nothing about how to end the message. There was nothing. I didn't see anything. I didn't feel anything. So all I knew was to end it. Sing and be dismissed. And when Kate stepped up on that platform, heaven just fell. Because it wasn't mine to do. And I love that. That this is not built around me. I did my part. And he opened the door through somebody else because I didn't see it coming. But when she opened her mouth, heaven, the doors opened and the floodgates opened. And here he came. So I I love that. I can't predict it. I can't. There's no way that I could tell anybody exactly what happened. Part of being here is just watching for him and letting him do what what only he can do. Remember, you're a member of a kingdom not defined by this earth or its limitations. You're a member of a kingdom whose nature and definition is God himself. Every day supernatural. Expect it. Believe it. Live it. It's absolutely the truth. Lord, we thank you for this reality, for the, for the thoughts of the kingdom and the truth about it. And we thank you, Lord, for the willing ears and the open heart and the spirits, Lord, that, that hunger for truth that will change and bring power and transformation. We thank you, Lord, that lives are being changed. And we thank you, Lord, that we're not doing it. We thank you, Lord, that you are doing what only you can do. But you desire our willingness. You desire our obedience. 
that we can see and hear. And in our obedience, you release unbelievable power. So we thank you, Lord, that we understand our part. We understand how it works in relationship to your part. And I pray, Lord, that we would never confuse the two. Thank you for this body and for the willingness to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.